Good morning. I'm Pastor Glenn Thomas, and we welcome all who are joining us for Bible study this morning. As you can probably hear on the air, we have a lot of people visiting here. Today is the final Sunday for our associate pastor, and so we're having a reception for him here, Pastor Kevin Thompson. And the reception is just about breaking up as we start the Bible study here this morning. Good to hear all that fellowship and visiting out there. Uh, we're welcoming, first of all, all who are joining us here in the gymnasium. And for those joining us in the gym, we do have Bibles over on the side on a cart. And we welcome also those who are joining us in the greater St. Louis area on KFUO, uh, KFUO 850 AM. And we welcome those who join us online also on KFUO.org. We are going to continue our trek through the Gospel of Luke, and we are near the end of chapter 4. So we will finish off chapter 4 today and launch into chapter 5. With that, though, let's begin with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending us the living bread, your Son, Jesus Christ, who came down from heaven, that we might partake of him and have life abundant and eternal life through him. We thank and praise you also for your word and that which it reveals to us about you, about our relationship with you, and about all the blessings and promises you give to us in and through that word. We invite your Holy Spirit to be with us this day as we continue our study in that word that we might continue to grow in our knowledge, our understanding, and especially also of your will for us as your children here. We pray your blessing upon us to that end, then, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, I said we we're going to end up, or start where we ended up last week, where Pastor Smith ended up last week, the end of Luke 4. Just a couple of words, uh, kind of get a running start into this today. Jesus is in Capernaum, and Capernaum is a town on the northwest part of the Sea of Galilee. It's on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. You can go there today. My wife and I have been privileged to be there twice now, and Lord willing, we'll be going back in February of 2023. And in that town, they have, they're, they're excavating a site there that is believed to be Peter's house. And that's where that miracle that you, you read about last week took place, where Jesus healed uh, Peter's mother-in-law of her fever. And of course, parenthetically, we like to say, to our Roman Catholic friends that it's hard to have a mother-in-law if you're not married, as far as I know. Anyway, so uh, anyway, that was, uh, and the, the amazing thing about Peter's house in Capernaum today, it's being excavated, as I said, they have built a, a, there's a huge Roman Catholic church that has been built over the top of it. So you come and you look in through the sides and you see the excavation work going. You see the walls and, and everything on that house, which again is believed to have been Peter's actual house, and then you can go into this huge Roman Catholic church, and in the floor they have clear plexiglass in various spots, and you can look down from directly above it and see again the excavation work taking place there. So it is one of the better sites actually in the Holy Land uh, to actually uh, look at an excavation. Then right in Capernaum also, not far, you just walk right over, uh, is the synagogue there. And the synagogue that you can sit in and walk into the ruins of is not the one that Jesus was in, but the one that Jesus was in is right below it. And you can see the foundation has black stone on it, and that's the stone of the synagogue where Jesus was uh, when, he, when he was in Capernaum. And so Capernaum became sort of a base of operations, I guess you would say, for Jesus when he was up in Galilee and in that, in that region. And he would, he would operate from Capernaum. So this is kind of a, not kind of, it is an important town when it comes to the, the life and ministry of Jesus. And just where you finished off last week, if we take a look at, uh, starting I guess at about verse 40 of Luke chapter 4, and we'll just read a few verses here. Now when the sun was setting... All those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. 
And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. Can you just imagine? I mean, we, we, we read through this very casually. But can you imagine being there and actually witnessing this taking place? That scores and scores of people are burning ill people and people who have various diseases and, and every, from paralyzed to, you know, all kinds of different uh, uh, things. And he is laying, Jesus is laying hands on and healing, it says, every one of them. It's not like he did five out of ten or three out of six. Every one of them. And notice there that even the demons know who he is and confess him for who he is. Isn't that ironic? That even the demons know who he is. And we're going to see, if we get to it today, that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law have a real problem seeing who he is. You know, there's a great irony there, isn't there? And this also points out that there is a big difference between knowing about Jesus and life-saving faith and trust in Jesus, right? Even the demons acknowledge who he is, but that's not saving faith, okay? So that's where we kind of ended up, or where you ended up last week, and we're going to now start moving ahead. We'll finish off chapter 4. And then we're going to see Jesus uh, calling his first disciples. We're going to see him doing some additional healing as well. So let's go to verse 42, first of all, and start there. And when it was day, so the next day after he's been doing all of this, he, Jesus, departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him. Now that, that verb sought in the original language is a, what's called an imperfect verb. It means they kept on seeking him. In other words, it wasn't just they came one time. They kept on coming after him and coming after him and coming after him, okay? Even though he's out in that desolate place and came to him, again, the same thing, kept coming to him and would have kept him from leaving them. In other words, they tried to contain him there. Don't go away. Stay here. And, of course, there were probably even more people that were being brought at that point to be healed. And notice, though, what he said. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent with this purpose. It's kind of interesting in verse 43. I must, Jesus says, or it is necessary that I do this. And what is he doing? Preaching the good news. Isn't that, doesn't that same statement apply for the Christian church today? We must proclaim this good news, not in a legalistic sense or because we don't want to, but that's what God has given us to do. And that's what Jesus is going to give the disciples to do, to go out and preach the good news, right? The gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God. Now let's talk just for a moment about that phrase, the kingdom of God. It is the ruling and reigning of God, and especially it is brought about by God's own action. It is not obviously an earthly kingdom. It, is not, it does not have geographic boundaries. It is not governed by a people. It is God's ruling in the hearts of people and in the world. And in Jesus, we have God breaking into this world in a very personal way. And when Jesus announced to people that the kingdom of God is near, he was also, in effect, telling them that God is near. But they didn't realize it. Some of them didn't realize it. But he is here. God is burning into effect now the rule and reign of God in this world, apart from the prince of this world, he is breaking in. And as we see him healing people, as we see him uh, casting out demons, we get a foretaste of what it's going to be like when he rules completely and totally after coming on the last day. 
we get a, just a foretaste of what that is going to be like. When there will be no more demons uh, afflicting us, there will be no more sin that afflicts us and any of, the, uh, any of the results of sin in our bodies, all of that will be gone. And we see in Jesus just the beginning, just a glimpse of what that existence is going to be like. He must, he says, go on and preach the good news of the kingdom of God. Now, from a couple aspects, let's just talk about this for a moment. Why did Jesus say, I must go and preach the good news of the kingdom of God in other towns, in other, in other towns as well? Why did he say, I must do this? Any thoughts? That was his mission. Exactly. Proclaim that good news. And what would happen through the proclaiming of that good news? People. I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, Oh, yes, the good news would spread, and what would people do? Hear the good news and, we hope, believe. Yeah, believe, right? And with that comes saving faith, eternal life, right? Remember uh, last week's gospel lesson, John 6? This is the will of my Father, that anyone who looks upon the Son and believes has, present tense, has eternal life. And Jesus says, I will raise him up on the last day. Yes, Paul. Yes, okay, all right. He did empty, well, let's put it this way. Instead of emptying totally, he didn't make full use of his divine powers while he was here. And whose will is he bowing to here? Father, right? Remember he said, I've come not to do my will, right, but the will of him who sent me, right? And that is the will of the Father, that he press on, that he proclaim this good news, and eventually that he go to a cross and offer his life as payment in full for the sin of the world, okay? So it is, I must preach the good news of the kingdom, right? And as I said before, just, you know, I think we perhaps, we, well, I'll tell you, I'm going to hold that off for another, <laughs> i got another time I can say this coming up. I don't want to get too far astray here. Notice there, he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea, and this we see is not only Jesus does this a lot, but Paul does this a lot as well. When he comes into a town, where's the first place he goes, if there is one? To the synagogue, right? And the synagogue was the place where the Word of God was taught, where the Word of God was read, where uh, prayers were offered. It was also, back at that time, very much a, uh, even a social, in that sense, a place of, of socialization where people gathered. Before my lifetime, I am told, if we go back to the early 1900s, that the Christian church was that way, that it was not just the spiritual hub, you might say, or a gathering point, but even socially. And that's why so many churches built what? Oh, okay, bowling alleys. <laughs> that wasn't what I was thinking of, but that, that's, that's a great example. Bowling alleys, but what else? We had one here for a long time. Oh, oh, I, shuffleboard, okay, that's... <laughs> I was thinking of a church hall is what I was thinking of. Okay, I'll give it away. Church Hall. And we had one for years here. Uh, the first parish I served in Mascouda, Illinois, had, an, had one way back in its history as well because the church was the, was the social gathering place as well. You, you know, today you think about, does it, is the church serving that purpose today? Probably not as much anyway as it did back then. People have so many different outlets, don't they? I mean, in terms of, of uh, social uh, gathering and so on today, uh, fellowship, but certainly for the body of Christ, the church is that place. Well, that's what the synagogue was back at that time. So Jesus would go to the synagogue and engage people there with that good news that the kingdom of God is near or the kingdom of God is here. And again, saying in so many words that God is here and God is breaking in with his rule and his reign. Now, Judea here. Most scholars think that Judea, of course, is, number one, Judea is a territory down the more southern part, sort of central part of uh, Palestine. But we think this is just a generic use that, that means the entire area of Palestine. So not looking, in fact, Mark tells us that this was happening up in Galilee at, at this time. All right, so here's what Jesus is doing now, going around, proclaiming the good news, going into synagogues, preaching and teaching He's doing this on a continual basis, okay? You don't sense yet 
that there's a lot of opposition. And we're going we're gonna to see the starting of it coming up. But you don't sense right now that there's a lot of opposition. He seems to be able to travel around and, and proclaim the good news of the kingdom to people pretty much unhindered or un, unopposed, we might say. Okay? All right, let's go on, uh, starting now chapter 5 and moving to chapter 5. On one occasion, so we don't know exactly when this was, but on one occasion, Luke says, while the crowd was pressing in on him to what? To hear the word of God. So we, we get from this that he is going about preaching and teaching just like he said in verse 43, and people are coming. In fact, great crowds are coming to hear him. You know, before we kind of got the impression that they were coming in order to be healed, and they were. But he's also, we don't want to lose track of the fact that he is gaining an audience to come and listen to him and to what he is teaching. Because he's going to be teaching some things that we're going to see the Pharisees, the scribes, and the elders are not going to be all happy about. And he's, he's getting quite a crowd here. He was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. Where's the lake of Gennesaret? That's the Sea of Galilee also. That's just another name for the Sea of Galilee. Sometimes you'll see it sometimes called the Sea of Tiberias also. These are actually, again, towns on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. So that's not meant to throw you off. And he, now Jesus, saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Okay? And we're going to pick up and see here that they're doing this after they've been out at night and they've caught nothing. So basically, they're packing it in, they're cleaning the sand and the rocks out of their nets and probably going to fold them up and call it a day or call it a night, I guess. And, and here comes Jesus, verse 3, getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's or was Peter's, he asked him, Peter, to put out a little from the land and he sat down and what does he do again? Taught the people from the boat. So you get the impression here, like the shore is over there where the tables are. He asked Peter to put out a little bit, and he sits down, Jesus sits down, and is teaching the people on the shore. He is having, I guess you'd say, a Bible class there on the shore of the Sea of Galilee with the people there. But now, what's going to happen coming up? Verse 4, and when he finished speaking, so he was done speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. So he turns to Simon and he says, let's, let's go further out into the deep. And uh, Sea of Galilee, like a lot of places, around the, a lot of bodies of water, around the shore would be shallow, but you don't go real far up before it gets quite a bit deeper. And so he's telling Peter, let's go back out into the deep. And so what's Peter's reaction here? And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. So in other words, what's, what's he telling to Jesus? This is ridiculous. We've been out there all night, Jesus. We took nothing. You know, uh, this is going to be a complete and total waste of time. This isn't, this isn't logical. But then notice what he says. But at your word, I will let down the nets. So what is Peter, what has Jesus in effect done here for Peter? Given him a what? Object lesson is coming up. A what? Okay, yeah, taste of things to come. But even before that, isn't he giving him a test of faith? Right? He's asking Peter to do something that looks on a surface of it as though it makes no sense whatsoever. You know? Peter's a fisherman. He knows, you know, and... and James and John, sons of Zebedee also, but Peter knows fishing, and he knows he's been out there all night, he knows he's got nothing, and yet Jesus is asking him to go back out there again. And Peter is going to, by faith, do exactly what Jesus says. Are there some things in the Christian church that God asks us to do that to some other people may not seem to make any sense at all, but we do them? What might some of those things be? Some of you just had one in worship this morning. Communion, right? We, we say, according to the promise of God, and we believe it, that when we are receiving the bread, we are also receiving the body of Christ. When we receive the wine, 
we are also receiving the blood of Christ. Can we explain that? Does that make any sense? No, only for the fact that Jesus has promised it, and Paul promises it, God promises it through the Holy Writings. Baptism, can we explain that? Simple water, but water used according to God's command and comprehended in his promise, right? So here Peter is doing the same thing. Because Jesus says it, he does it, okay? And look at the result here. So verse 6, And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. These are the kind of uh, nets, they have a rope around them, and you put them out on the water, and then you kind of like close them up. They, they, they close up like this. And the, the number of fish that they had was so great that the nets were breaking, they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. Wow. So many fish, the boats began to sink. They couldn't handle it. There were so many fish, right? And at a time, remember, at a time when this shouldn't have happened. This was not the proper time to be fishing. Peter tried to tell Jesus that. But there's so many fish in here, they are sinking. And look at Peter's reaction. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me. For I am a sinful man, O Lord. Interesting reaction, isn't it? That instead of drawing Peter toward Jesus, this action of gaining and getting all of these fish actually caused Peter to ask Jesus to depart from him. And why? Because Peter realized he was what? Sinful man. And although he, he says, O Lord... He's also saying, I'm a sinful man, and I'm in the presence of what? The holy God as well. And so an action that, you know, you would think on the surface, well, Peter would have, would have uh, really been excited when he saw this catch of fish. He has the exact opposite reaction and sees himself for who he is, a sinful man in the holy presence of God. Now let's stop for a moment. Does this have any implications for us when we come to worship on a Sunday morning? When we come to worship on a Sunday morning, who are we coming into the presence of, even though he is omnipresent, but especially where he has promised to be for us, we're coming into the presence of the Holy God, right? And what's one of the first things we do? Well, we have announcements and we sing a hymn and we do the invocation. But what's one of the first things we do? We confess our sin before God, don't we? We realize we are in the presence of a holy, the holy, and almighty God. And we don't, Peter here falls down. He falls down in, in, at, at Jesus' knees. We don't, many churches have kneelers, for example. There's nothing wrong with kneeling. Many churches have it. It's that, uh, that position of humility uh, before God as we confess our sin or also as we go to him in prayer. And, you know, again, we are, think of what we're doing there. We're saying that we, when we invoke the name of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and we are in his presence, we first of all acknowledge we are sinful. By nature, sinful and unclean, right? And we ask for his mercy and his forgiveness. And then receive that through his grace and mercy. Receive that forgiveness, right? Yes, and, and it also receiving the body and blood of Christ uh, eventually, as we, as we said we did uh, this morning. Okay? Uh, and you know, it's kind of interesting, when um, you think about this a little bit more, was Jesus, was his intention here with his catch of fish, was it to make Peter a wealthier man and a greater fisherman and a big, uh, big payday for him? Oh, of course not, right? And the reason I bring this up is there are some churches that, and you can see some of this on television if you watch on Sunday mornings as well, that uh, preach what is called a prosperity gospel. In other words, that the, the purpose and the reason for Jesus in your life is to make you more successful here on this earth. 
to have your best life now, as one uh, book title uh, has it. And you see here, this was not Jesus' goal. This was not his aim. Jesus had a much higher purpose in mind, pointing out to Peter, number one, his relationship to God is that of a sinner, and we're going to see here in just a moment, absolving Peter of his sin, and then calling Peter to go out and catch men alive, literally, as it is in the original language. And so our purpose as a church, as a Christian church, is not to preach a Jesus so that people can advance at work and have more money and drive a bigger car and have a nicer home. God may bless you with things like that, but that is not why Jesus came, right? He is out there preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. And that's what, that's what we want to be preaching uh, day in and day out and teaching day in and day out here as a church. And notice there that the focus should be on Jesus, not on ourselves. So it's, it's a, a, it has a lot to say when it comes to worship. And is the focus on me, I, 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 or is the focus on Jesus and the cross and what he did for us there? And again, that, if you look at... Again, if you look at Christian songs, that's one of the things we look at. Where's the focus? Is the focus on me and overcoming my challenges? Or is the focus on Jesus overcoming the biggest challenge, namely sin and death? Okay? Let me stop there for a moment. Uh, any comments or questions before we move on? No? All right. Let's move on. Uh, notice now, uh, verse 9. Oh, and by the way, that, that I am a sinful man obviously would be a confession, right? He's confessing what he is there before the Lord. Verse 9, for he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken, and so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. James and John, we know, were fishermen also, and they were, as it says, sons of a guy named Zebedee, and they were, so they were all fishermen, and all of them were just astonished by that catch of fish. Not only by the size of it, but by the time of day that it took place, which shouldn't have happened. Okay? And G now, watch what Jesus says to Peter. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. What is Jesus communicating to Peter here? Peter says, you know, depart from me. Peter was so uh, terrified, I guess you'd say, because he falls down on his knees and says, I'm a sinful man. What's Jesus' response? Do not be afraid. What is Jesus, in, in, not in so many words, but what is he also telling him there? What's he, what's he communicating to him there, to Peter? Forgiveness, yes. Your sins are forgiven, right? It's like, it's like the absolution. Be not afraid, Peter. Yes. Now notice, does Jesus deny that, that Peter is a sinful man? He does, not, he does not say, oh, no, Peter, you're not. Don't, no, no don't, don't believe that for a moment. No. He says, he's sort of almost acknowledging that. Do not be afraid, right? And so, again, he's, he's not saying, uh, you're wrong, Peter. You've got it all wrong. No. Just don't be afraid. And now look at this. From now on, you will be literally, in the original language, catching men alive. That last word, catch, uh, catching alive men, is what Peter is going to be doing from this point on. So what is Jesus telling Peter he's going to be doing? Gonna, I'm sorry? Yeah, well, fishing for men, he's going to actually be doing, is going to now become a co-worker with whom? With Jesus. Yeah. And so we're starting to see here that Jesus is going from having hearers, people just coming to hear him, and people who are coming to be healed, now he is starting to have co-workers, workers that are going to go out on his behalf and full-time, not going to be fishing anymore, but full-time going to be doing the same thing that Jesus did in verse, said he was going to need to do in verse 43, and that is proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God and make disciples, you might say is another way, make followers, okay? So, Going on, notice there what happens in verse 11. And when they, now who would the they be? Not only Peter, but James and John. And we don't know, we don't know if there were any others there. 
Those are the only ones that are mentioned or are identified. Uh, they brought, uh, and they brought their, excuse me. Yeah, and, and when they had brought their boats on land, they left everything and followed him. So they leave behind, and, and a lot of commentators will say, well, they probably had to, you know, get rid of their boats and take care of the, you know, okay. But the first act of faith on the part of those disciples is following Jesus. And what an act of faith that is, right? We, we read about this very casually, but just think of that. They are leaving their occupation, they're leaving their vocation behind, and they are following Jesus. And that's a technical term, to be a follower of Jesus. And that is a huge step, you might say, of faith on their part. They have heard him teaching. We wish we would have been able to hear what Jesus was teaching when he was in that boat. But they, and Peter also, hearing this, now follow him. Okay? All right. Next, we want to see Jesus. Oh, let, me talk, let me stop there. Any, any questions or comments on that? Pam? Yes. Right. Yeah, okay. The, the question was about when I said earlier, I have come not to do my own will, but the will of my Father who sent me. And Jesus, we go, for example, let's go to Monday, Thursday evening where he is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. In other words, let, let's, let's not do it this way. And then he says, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. Their, their um, wills were in alignment, so to speak, because he is sent from the Father, and he and the Father are one, as he points out in other areas. But from a purely human standpoint, and we have to remember he was true man as well, knows what is coming down the pike. And it is not going to be pleasant. It is going to be, uh, from a human standpoint, the agony that he is going to go through. Not just the physical suffering, but the abandonment by his father on the cross, which was the worst abandonment, or the worst suffering, I should say, of all. Yeah. Does that help? Yeah. Okay. Any other comments or questions before we move on? All right, let's go on then. We're going to see now Jesus cleansing a leper. And so let's read a little bit of this. While he was in one of the cities. Now, we don't know which one. Luke does not tell us which one. We think, again, this is still somewhere in Galilee, probably around the Sea of Galilee somewhere. A man full of leprosy. Now, that word full... And the full of leprosy is actually a medical term that is a diagnosis. And I bring this up because, remember, what was Luke's profession? A, he was a physician, a doctor. So he, he, in his gospel, has some terminology that the other gospel writers do not. And it's because of his profession as a physician. So a, a man full of leprosy. Now, it's kind of interesting, there in, the, in the original language, there is no uh, word for that this guy came up to them or appeared somewhere. It's just like, all of a sudden, behold, a man full of leprosy. Now, where would the people who had leprosy, where were they resigned to live? Outside of town. They could not be anywhere within the, the limits of the town. They would always be in colonies or collections of, of lepers outside of the city, the town. And as you approached them, they were supposed to say, unclean, unclean. And that was your signal that they had leprosy. By the way, I don't want to, shouldn't assume this. What is leprosy? Skin disease, and it rots your skin, basically. It's, it's kind of, I don't know if you, you can go on, you can Google it online and you will see, I, I wouldn't recommend doing this for lunch, but you will see actual pictures of people with leprosy. And it, it just, it's like a rotting of the skin. And uh, so they, these people who had leprosy were put outside of town, keep them from people. If you touched a person who was a leper, as Jesus is going to do, you were ceremonially unclean. You could not go and worship until you went through 
purification ceremonies, which are described, in fact, Leviticus 11 through Leviticus 16. If you want some stem-winding reading sometime, read Leviticus 11 through Leviticus 16. It has all the rules and regulations for being clean and being unclean and what you had to do. And I believe it's Leviticus 14 is an entire chapter devoted to what you had to do if you came into contact uh, with a leper and then also, more importantly, what you had to do after you were cured of leprosy. And we'll get into this in just a moment, okay? So it was a serious, it was a serious disease back at that time. So this guy comes up, and he fell on his face and begged him, Jesus, of course, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Now notice the, notice the words he uses there. He doesn't say, if you want to, you cure me of leprosy. It's, you'll make, you can make me clean. In other words, you can make me able to be able to worship again, to rejoin society again, because I'll be clean versus being unclean, where I am not able to worship, where I am not able, to, with, with others, where I am not able to be, come and go in society. And so Jesus, what Jesus is about to do is completely unheard of. Jesus here, notice what he does, stretched out his hand and touched him. By doing that, if any common person did that, they would be considered unclean at that point. Not Jesus. Touched him saying, I will, in other words, I will make you clean. Be clean. He simply gives the, gives the announcement, be clean. And notice what happens. And immediately, the leprosy left him. It didn't take a while. Now, this is different. When Jesus, you know, the uh, gospel lesson, we're gonna, uh, later on in Luke 17, every Thanksgiving, we have the same gospel lesson. It's Jesus healing the ten lepers. And remember, what does he tell them? Go and do what? Go and show yourself to the priest. And it's interesting that while they were going, they were healed, it says in Luke 17. This is different. This guy immediately is healed. Okay? The leprosy leaves him, and he is fine once again. And Jesus charged him, this guy, to tell no one. Now, doesn't that seem strange to us? Why would Jesus instruct this guy who had been healed not to tell anyone about what had happened? What do you think? Wasn't his time yet. Exactly, exactly. You know, on the surface, you might think, well, gee, why, why wouldn't Jesus want this guy to be spreading this far and wide? It, you, as you read through the Gospels, you, you really see that everything is on Jesus' timetable. He's calling the shots. He, it, it's his timetable, not others. And it just wasn't his time yet. And that's uh, clear here. But notice what he tells him to do. Go and show yourself to the priest again, because the priest is the one who had to pronounce that you truly were clean and, and could come back into worship. And, notice here, make an offering for your cleansing. And there were two, two offerings, a guilt offering and a sin offering, that he would have had to make, as Moses commanded, that would have been in Leviticus 14, for a proof to them. But even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to, number one, hear him, and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Couple things. By healing this leper, if you could keep your finger here and turn to Luke 7, uh, verses 18 through 23. And this is the account when John the Baptist sends his disciples to Jesus. And remember, he says, remember the question they came with, and this John says, go to see Jesus, ask him, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect another? Okay? So look at the response here in Luke 7. Let's look at verses uh, 18 through 23. The disciples of John reported all of these things to him, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they, they said, 
John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of their diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. Now here's the part. And he, Jesus, answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed. And the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So, quoting from Isaiah here, Jesus says, instead of saying to the disciples of John the Baptist, yep, I'm the one, I'm the Messiah, I'm the one who was supposed to come, go back and tell John. Instead of answering that way, he refers to the Old Testament prophecies from the book of Isaiah, and this would be in Isaiah 29, 35, 42, and 61, about what this Messiah is going to be and do when he comes. He says, go back and tell John what you see. In other words, all, all of these prophecies from Isaiah are being fulfilled in me. And notice that one of those prophecies is that lepers will be healed, right? Will be cleansed. And so what we are seeing Jesus do here, step by step, systematically, and Luke is having us see this, that Jesus is demonstrating, not only with his words about the kingdom of God, the teaching, but also with his deeds, that in fact he is the long-awaited Messiah. He is the one who was to come. So go back and tell John what you're seeing. It's all being fulfilled. Okay? It's kind of interesting, just for a moment, that Jesus tells this guy to go and offer a sacrifice for, so that uh, they were called like a cleansing sacrifice, right? Well, Jesus is the one that eventually is going to provide the cleansing sacrifice on the cross, right? So it's kind of interesting. He says to the guy, go and offer the sacrifices that are only going to point ahead to the, in effect of the sacrifice I'm going to make on the cross and bring about the ultimate cleansing, right? It's kind of ironic. But notice there, he, he, Jesus makes sure that this guy is following all the rules and fulfilling all righteousness. And he, he is not skirting the, the rules, the regulations, the religious laws at, at, in any way, okay? Now, one more thing before we leave this. At the very end, verse uh, 16, does anything surprise you about verse 16 as you read it? What's Jesus do? They're bringing, they're bringing all kinds of crowds to hear him and to be healed by him. And what does Jesus do? Takes off. Same thing he did before, right? Uh, in uh, Capernaum, when they're bringing all the people to him, he goes off and says, I've got to go and preach other towns. And here he goes off to a desolate place and prays. And you know, we probably, uh, it'd, be, it'd be very interesting to make a list of all the times in the Gospels where it says Jesus goes off and prays. There are quite a number of them. I, I don't know the exact number. I don't even know a guesstimate. But it just seems to me that we hear that a lot. And uh, we heard Jesus praying, uh, I wrote a couple down, his baptism, he prays. Luke 3, um, calling of the 12, he prays, coming up in chapter 6. First passion prediction that he makes, he prays after that. Transfiguration, he prays, and I already referenced before, he prays on Monday, Thursday, when he is there in the garden, right? And he prays in the upper room with his disciples. He is praying, 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 praying. Is there anything we can learn from that? <laughs> kind of Captain Obvious here with the question, right? That uh, if, uh, if they're so often in life, there are so many things that are pressing on us and weighing us down. And it would have been easy for Jesus to just continue healing everyone who comes and teaching all the time. But he takes that time. There's another spot where it says he went off with his disciples to pray. And I think there's, there's a good lesson there for us. We sometimes just pass over it as kind of a throwaway verse that he goes off and prays, but there really, I think, is something important for us to see in that, that that, that is good, a good practice for us as well.
Private prayer? Yes, yes. This one is, yeah, this one is not with his, at least it doesn't say, not with his disciples. This is more private prayer, right? Okay? All right, anything else before we move on? A few minutes left. All right, let's go on, and now we're going to see him heal a paralytic. And now we're starting to see, you know, Jesus has got all tremendous popularity, and he has called his first disciples, and they are following him. And you kind of sense with that going to pray that something is going to be coming up. And it, in fact, is. We're going to start to see the opposition starting to mount. Okay? So, uh, verse 17, on one of those days. Now, again, we don't, <clears throat> we don't know exactly what day it was. It was one of those days. As he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village in Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. So this is the first mention of the Pharisees in Luke's gospel. Okay? And notice, were there just one or two there? Kind of a little scouting detail? No, you get the impression they were coming from all over. Because again, the word of Jesus was beginning to spread. We don't know, we don't think, most people, scholars don't think literally every village. It's just an expression that from all over the area, they were coming. Okay? Now the Pharisees are kind of an interesting group. You could say both good and bad about them. They are lay people. They're not, they're not clergy. They're lay people, like the Lutheran Layman's League, I would say. And they, we think they started about, uh, about 200 B.C. or so when there was a great effort to bring Greek influences into the Jewish religion. And they were the ones who held the ground. And uh, there was a great Hellenization taking place at that time in, in world history. And it was starting to creep into Judaism as well. And the Pharisees are the ones, we believe, that held the line against it. And, and uh, were absolutely stringent and insistent that the law and the teachings of Moses be maintained. So from that standpoint, you could say, well, they, I guess they had a good influence at one time. But by the time of Jesus, they were so fixated again on keeping every jot and tittle of the law, and then, unfortunately, added to the law of God uh, what they called a fence around the law, which was 613 additional regulations that were designed by them to make sure you didn't even come close to uh, breaking the law. And, and, and we say, again, it, it, it was just not a good thing by the time of Jesus. And their big thing was the Sabbath day and what you could do on the Sabbath day and what you couldn't do on the Sabbath day. And, for example, the one time when Jesus' disciples are walking along the side of the field and they pick some grain, which was, that's why farmers, God commanded this in the Old Testament, that when they would harvest their fields, they would not go all the way up until the edge of the field. They'd leave some there for travelers, for the poor, for the hungry. So Jesus' disciples are going. They pick some of the grain, pop it in their mouth, and who's there to get them? The Pharisees, right? Because it's the Sabbath day. And they would take the picking of the corn to be harvesting, the threshing it in their hands, and, and would be preparing it. And that's, that's how uh, incredibly minute they were in their detail about the Sabbath. So these are the guys showing up now, okay? And this is the first time we see them. It's kind of Luke lets us know, uh-oh, the Pharisees are here. Notice who, who else is there. You've got Pharisees and teachers of the law. These would have been scholars of the uh, Jewish, the Old Testament law, You'll see in, uh, in the scriptures, we have kind of three different categories. We've got scribes, uh, lawyers, and teachers. And the scribes, they, they all were scribes to some extent. And uh, there are still scribes today, by the way, who you know, one of the things they did was copy the word of God, manuscript-wise, and in so doing became experts on it. You know, if you're doing this all day long, every day, you get to know it pretty well, I think. So they were sort of seen as the experts of the day. The lawyers were the guys who not only knew the law very well, but they gave you legal advice. You know? Like, again, 
uh, how, how far can I go from my house on the Sabbath day before I'm breaking the law? And you would ask, maybe consult a lawyer with that question, a lawyer in Jewish law. The teachers then were the ones who went even further and actually taught the law. In addition to knowing it, in addition to advising people about it, they actually taught the law. Paul studied under one of the most famous teachers of the day, Gamaliel, and uh, a rabbi or a teacher of that day. Okay? Now, notice they come, and from all over they come to, they, they probably, you, you just think to yourself, they are probably trying to figure out who this guy Jesus is. This guy that's getting all this notoriety, we got to go see him for ourselves, right? We've got we to gotta find out who this guy is. Next, let's go to verse uh, 18. And behold, some men were burning on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof. Now, many of the houses back at that time, you had the main house part, and they could have been a little bit taller. And on the outside wall, you would have a stairway up to the roof, where sometimes they would go and sit, especially cooler at night outside. And notice what they did. They went up on the roof and let this guy down, this paralyzed guy down, excuse me, in his bed. It was like a stretcher type of bed. Uh, Through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. So they take tiles off the ceiling. And we don't know exactly about this construction, but we think it was probably some frames. And they had these tiles. They pop in and out. They leave them out most of the time. But obviously, if it's going to rain, they, in the rainy season, they put them back in. Uh, keep the place dry inside. And they, they lower this guy down. And look at Jesus' reaction in verse 20. And when he, Jesus, saw, notice whose faith? Their faith. So the guy and those who brought him, that, that brought him in faith to Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you, said to this guy. By the way, just for a second, is there a parallel here between these people burning this paralyzed guy to Jesus? Did anybody ever do that, something similar for you in your life? Really? When was it? Baptism, right? Your baptism, right? We weren't paralyzed, but could we do anything for ourselves? No. And I trust you were blessed with parents who brought you to Jesus, brought you to the waters of holy baptism, as I was blessed. Okay? And so notice there, your sins are forgiven. Now, whoa. The Pharisees are going to get all over this because who alone can forgive sins? Only God. Who's this guy? What, is he, what gives him the right to say your sins are forgiven? So verse 21, And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Blasphemies would be false teachings about God in particular. So they're saying, you know, they're, they're saying this guy is a false teacher. Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise and walk? So which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven, or rise and walk? Okay, if I say, if I say to you, Your sins are forgiven, can anybody verify that? No. But if I say, Rise and walk, can people verify that? Yes, it either happens or it doesn't, right? He's either, he's either the real thing, the real McCoy or he's not. And so notice what he says here as is, is he gets behind this. He says, but, verse 24, But that you may know that the Son of Man, which is Jesus, you know, me, has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose before them and picked up what had, had, he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. There are two different words in Greek. One is for authority and one is for power. One for power is the Greek word dynamis. And we get the word dynamite from that. It's, 
Paul in uh, Romans uh, 1 says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. That's the word dynamis, power. Authority, as Jesus says he has here, means you not only have the power to do something, you have the right to use it. Right? And so he not only has the power, but he has the right, the, the right, all authority given to him by the Father to do this. Okay? And so Jesus is saying, so that you'll know that I really do have the authority to forgive sins on earth, I'm going to tell this guy to take up his bed and walk. And the guy, and it happens, right? And I'm getting out of time here. The thing I wish we had yet in this text, we don't have it, is what was the reaction of the, of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law when they saw this guy get up, pick up his bed, and walk out of the room, walk out of the house. I mean, they must have just been completely beside themselves because they're coming to scout this guy out and are probably walking away thinking to themselves, boy, it is as bad as we've heard. <laughs> this, guy, this guy is healing everybody and people are coming to listen to him. And, you know, so this is just the introduction here today you're going to be seeing now the opposition rising against Jesus from the religious authorities, and they are simply going to, in the end, obviously, scream for him to be crucified. Okay, But it's just the first mention of it here today. All right, we are out of time. Let's close with the benediction. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen. Amen.